Bibles are open to Matthew chapter number 9. Matthew chapter number 9. In the Gospel of John chapter 21, verse 25, John sums up part of his, his Gospel saying this, that there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So many things that Jesus did. Multitudes followed him. And the Bible says repeatedly, and he healed them all. We have no idea how many blind people had their sight restored or deaf people could hear. We have no idea how many lame people were able to walk, how many lepers were cleansed. How many people that were possessed of devils that were set free from that type of bondage? The Bible even uses the word maimed, people that had had body parts perhaps lost or cut off or, or, or whatever. The Bible says that he healed them. I would have loved to have seen what that was like. But the Bible says in John's words, I, I, if we wrote down every story, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. You realize that every person who came in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, they were changed if they wanted to be. Don't forget that. They were changed if they wanted to be. In his hometown of Nazareth, the Bible says he did not many miracles there because of their unbelief. You understand they had sick folk there too. And they had blind and deaf and lame folk there too, but they didn't get healed. They didn't have miracles because they just chose not to believe. But there were so many multitudes that did. And every person had a backstory. Every person had some kind of a tra tragedy or a loss or a heartache or a struggle in their lives. Some of them, like one woman in Matthew chapter 9, had had an issue of blood for, for uh, 12 years. She had spent all of her money on doctors. She was now physically uh, uh, sicker than she was and financially destitute. And every person that was healed had a backstory of some kind of a heartache like that in one moment with Jesus, and it was all turned around. And you realize that every person that God healed got a new start on life. It was never the same again. Amen. When we come in contact with Christ, when we begin to walk with him, even as believers, our lives will never, ever be the same. When I first got saved as a 14-year-old boy, we used to sing the song in our youth group, the things I used to do, don't do them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. And I can honestly attest, I haven't arrived yet. I know I have a long way to go, but boy, I thank God I'm not what I used to be. There has been a great change. And if you're saved, you ought to be able to say the same thing. I wasn't raised in church, but can I say this? Those of you that were, your life should have changed after you got saved too. Um, and, and that's true of everybody that came in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapters 8 and 9, there are no less than 10 of those stories that are given to us. We don't get the whole story. We don't get every detail and, and, and we don't get uh, names for the most part of any of these people. But the Holy Spirit said out of these multitudes... There are a few stories that I want you to know about. 
There are few individuals and how they interacted with Christ and how Christ changed their lives. And I want you to pay attention to them. And that's what we want to do in verse 27. Jesus is in the city or the, the town of Capernaum. It's right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Peter lived. And uh, oftentimes it appears Jesus resorted back to Peter's home and that would be where he spent the night and maybe recouped his strength and got ready to go back out uh, for ministry on the next day. He's been busy. He's been busy. Again, a miracle after miracle. I believe there are 10 of them. Uh, there, were, there was a leopard that got cleansed. A centurion servant uh, got cleansed just by Jesus speaking the word. Jesus wasn't even there. Peter's mother-in-law uh, was sick of a fever and got healed. Uh, there was the calming of the sea one night. There was the maniac of Gadara. Uh, there was the palsied man that they dug a hole through the roof and brought him down by ropes into the room and Jesus healed him. And on and on it goes. And then we come to verse 27. When Jesus departed thence, his last miracle before this one was the healing of the ruler of the synagogue's daughter. She was 12 years old. We know from the Gospel of Mark, his name was Jairus. And he came and besought the Savior, would you please come and heal my daughter? And uh, Jesus, on his way, uh, just followed this man, was going to go to his house. On the way, that woman with the issue of blood stopped him, touched the hem of his garments, and she was healed. Jesus continued to the house, and, and uh, that little girl had died. And Jesus raised her from the dead in a miraculous moment. The fame, in verse 26 hereof, went abroad into all that land. Everybody was talking about this. Nobody had ever seen anything like the things that Jesus was doing in their midst. So he's departed from Jairus' house. And the Bible says two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. I want you to understand he didn't stop to help them. They're following him. He went to Jairus' house. He followed Jairus into his home to heal that little girl. Um, he stopped with the woman that had the issue of blood, but now there are two blind men, and they're following, following him. They're crying out, uh, and, and they're saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And if you will, it seems like he's kind of ignoring them. He does not stop. He goes into the house, and these guys did not stop. They had a faith that just was going to uh, uh, just, just send them forward and they followed them into the house and uh, they're just right there because they need something from Christ. It's these two blind men we want to look at this morning. We want to look at the fact that Jesus deals with us all as individuals. He doesn't necessarily deal with us in the same way. Now, he loves us all the same. He saves us all the same way through the death, burial and, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in our personal walk, he knows where we are and he knows that we're all working on different things and we're all growing at a different rate and we're all at a different level. So he meets us where we are and deals with us as we are. I want you to notice some things about these two blind men. Number one, would you notice they're pleading? They're pleading. The Bible says again, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. 
They followed him. They are blind. You realize they cannot see the ground in front of them. They cannot see the twists and turns of uh, the streets in a little village like Capernaum. Uh, if you go there and you see the ruins of, uh, of Capernaum as it's been sort of put back together, what it would have been like in Christ's day and age, their streets weren't uh, like, like Whittlesey Avenue out here. They were, they were little more than maybe a double-wide sidewalk in places. The houses were close together. There were vendors with, with uh, items and carts out in those streets and so forth. Uh, would you understand that these two men without the benefit of sight are following Christ. They're using their hearing that is probably far more acute than is ours. Maybe they're listening to the murmur of voices in front of them, that entourage that, that is with Christ, and these two men are following. The Bible says that they were also crying. They were crying, their tears running down their face. They are, they are crying out. They've got a burden in their lives. And for the first time in their lives, they feel like they've got hope. These blind men, there's no doctor that's going to do a surgery and help them see again. There's no medication. They may have tried all of those things. And up until this point, they thought, I will never see a sunrise or a sunset. I will never look into the face of my parents or my child. I, I will never see what color is like. They just, they just maybe assumed that life was just this darkness forever. But all of a sudden, they have hope because they've heard about this Jesus of Nazareth, and they're, they're following after him. He's healing everybody else. He just raised a little girl from the dead, and, and they're crying, thou son of David, have mercy on us. But it seems like he's not listening. It seems like he's not hearing them, and they're crying. There's a desperation in them, but they keep following. It's a, it's a sad commentary that a lot of us we want God to help us, but we want God to help us now. But sometimes God doesn't help us on our timetable. The book of Ecclesiastes says he hath made everything beautiful in his time. But, but when we pray, we expect the answer right now. And sometimes the answer isn't going to come exactly when we thought that it should. So we give up. If, if many people in modern days would have been either one of those two blind men and they're crawling out to Jesus and he doesn't stop and turn around and help them like he did the woman with the issue of blood or, or Jairus and his daughter run straightway to the house and take care of all of that, we'd have just said, fully on you, we're out of here. But I want you to understand their pleading continued. Their pleading continued. Their emotions betrayed their desperation and their desire, and their determination. Their pleading made the statement coming out of them saying, we are unwilling to live like this anymore. We are unwilling to live in this darkness when there's hope of light. We're unwilling to live in blindness when we can have sight. And we know that this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, has the ability to restore, to give us our sight. And we're not giving up until we have it. Until we have it. They were unwilling to live any longer like that. Sometimes it amazes me that there are people that know that God is the answer. They know that they need to get saved but they're putting it off. 
I, I dealt a number of years ago with, with a young man in my office. He was in, in the Army Reserves, a nice young man, a, a very, very sharp young man, a very intelligent young man, and he had asked uh, for an appointment with me. He worked with my daughter, Anna, at Starbucks. And he came in and, and uh, we had a conversation and so forth and he wanted to know all about being saved. And I took him through the Bible and I showed it to him and he said, he said that makes perfect sense. I, I, I understand that completely. And then I asked him, I said, would you be willing to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And he said, I know I should. I know I need to. I know that this is right. But I know that if I get saved... My life is going to change. And when it does, I will lose every single one of my friends. And I couldn't talk him out of that. It, it, and he wasn't being a smart aleck. He, he, he wasn't being belligerent. He was speaking from the heart. It was one of the most heartbreaking conversations that I've ever had. Have you ever wondered why did the prodigal son wait so long to go home? You realize he didn't have to lose everything. He could have gone home on day one. He could have turned around and said, Dad, I'm being an idiot. I, I, I have no idea what I was saying. Dad, can you forgive me? Let me come home. And he wouldn't have had the scars of the pig pen. He wouldn't have had the stench of that clinging to his rags and to his flesh and to his hair. He wouldn't be emaciated wishing that he could eat as well as the, the, the pigs that he fed um, uh, were, were being fed. He didn't have to wait that long, but he had to wait until he was at rock bottom before he came to himself and said, I will, I will arise and go to my father. Sooner or later, every one of us has to come to the end of ourselves and stop making our excuses why we're not getting saved. Stop making our excuses why we're not getting right with God. Stop making excuses why we're not living for God and just say, I'm tired of living like this. These men, they're, they're, their whole pleading, the fact that they're following Christ, uh, even though Christ appears to, to, to ignore them and they continue to ask and they continue to plead, they're saying, we're not willing to live like this anymore. That brings us to number two, their persistence. Their persistence. This wasn't a one-time prayer. They stayed after it. They followed him. When he was come into the house, verse 28, the blind men came to him. Have you ever had anybody just walk into your house and you didn't invite them in? Yes. Has that ever happened to anybody? That's rather disconcerting. You know, somebody just assumes that, uh, uh, well, I knocked and you didn't answer, and they just kind of walked in. Uh, I like mystery shows. I, I'm a mystery fan. I like to read like Agatha Christie, Christie mystery books and stuff. Uh, I like to watch British mystery TV or movies. I, I, I really do. And there's one thing that I've noticed on all of them. Uh, whoever the detective is or the constable or, or DCI Barnaby or whatever, they knock at the door and if nobody answers, they just walk in and they're walking through somebody's house. Hello? Hello? How do you arrest the policeman for breaking and entering? I, I, don't, I don't know how that works. Um, do you realize this is probably Peter's house? And it's already a bit crowded because Peter's there. He has a mother-in-law, which means that Peter also had a wife. You don't get mother-in-laws any other way. You don't buy them on Amazon. Okay, so the first pope was married. Um, 
there was, he was not the first pope, just in case you're wondering what I think about that. Uh, it, uh, Peter's wife lived there. Apparently, Peter's mother-in-law lived there. He's got Peter, uh, has the other 11 disciples in Christ. He's got a crowd, and all of a sudden, bursting through the door, come these two blind men that have been following him up the street, and they're still crying out, uh, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Can you imagine the confusion maybe on people's faces uh, and so forth? Their persistence. Their persistence. Everywhere else, Jesus stopped to help them. This time, Jesus made them follow. Jesus made them follow. In James chapter 5 and verse 16, we are taught, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. And then this familiar phrase comes along. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The effectual, that means a continual, but it's an effective prayer life. It's praying with purpose. And fervent means it's praying with passion. It's not just a -a rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub type thing. It's, it's not what sometimes young people call the Christian school prayer. Dear Lord, help us have a good day. Help nobody get in trouble. Amen. And I'm not trying to mock anybody, but sometimes our prayer lives can become almost cut and dried like that. These guys had a passion about it. We know they're crying. There's tears running down their face. This is their only hope. This is their last hope. And he hasn't listened to them yet but they're not done praying. How many have something that you've been praying for and God hasn't provided it yet? God hasn't answered the prayer. How many are like that? My hand is up. Question, is your prayer as passionate now as when you started? Is your prayer filled with as much faith and hope and expectation now as when you started praying? There's a proverb that says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. When we're expecting something, when we're hoping for something and it doesn't come about, we tend to get discouraged. And that hope, hope is the confident expectation of good. That hope seems to just die down just a little bit. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. And sometimes, is it not true that that happens in our prayer lives? When that need is first there, buddy, we're, we're at God's throne and, and we're there with passion and we're there with tears and then a few days or maybe a few weeks or maybe a few months or maybe a few years go by and that prayer is not answered yet. Do we pray with the same passion or now is doubt taking over? Is a spirit of I've been asking for this for so long, I'm going to ask again, but I really don't expect you to answer I want you to understand these men did not give up on their passion. Even though it seems like the Savior has ignored them, they're still pleading. They are still persistent. In Genesis chapter 32, we read the story of a man named Jacob. Jacob has made a mess of his life in the past. Jacob brought about a lot of turmoil in his own family, and he's been gone for 21 years long years. During that time, things have changed in Jacob's life. He's had some encounters with the Lord. He's made some promises and covenants with God, and God's made some promises to Jacob. 
Jacob is coming back home, and he's not just a single young man fleeing for his life. He's married, not with one, but four wives at the same time. That was legal in those days, not at all wise. And if you know Jacob's story, wasn't a real happy home, but he had four wives. And at this time, uh, he had uh, 12 children, one daughter, 11 sons, and he would have another son uh, later on in his story. But he's coming home. He's coming home to a brother who's had 21 years to hate him, 21 years to stew and to brood and to say, if I ever see him again, I will kill him. The last thing uh, Jacob knew about Esau is Esau was telling everyone, as soon as our father is dead, I will kill my brother. He has cheated me. He has robbed me. He has deceived our father. And Esau hated his brother with a passion. In fact, Esau's hatred of Jacob was so strong that it bled into, into Esau's children to his grandchildren. And generations later, God condemned all of Esau's descendants saying, you have hated with a perpetual hatred. That's how bad Esau hated his brother Jacob, and Jacob knows it. He's approaching the river Jordan where he's going to cross and enter into that land where Esau lives, and he sent some servants over and some presents for his brother to try to assuage the anger as best he could, and a message said, I'm coming back home. And the servants came back and said, Esau's coming, and he's got 400 men with him. He's got a considerable army with him. And Jacob knows the handwriting's on the wall. Esau plans to destroy him. Jacob sends the rest of his family across the Jordan River safely that day. And he's left alone by himself in what would still be considered the wilderness. And he's alone and he has a prayer meeting. The Bible says there was a man that met him. We learn later on it was an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a Christophany. And they began to wrestle. They began to wrestle. And they wrestled all night long and Jacob was, was holding on. Jacob was determined, I'm not going to lose this. I'm not going to lose this battle. I, it, it may have been at this point, I, I don't know who you are and I don't know why you've attacked me, but I am not going to allow you to get the best of me. I've got a family that I've got to take care of. I, I, I've, I've got children I've got to take care of. I've got a confrontation tomorrow that I've got to be there for. Otherwise, uh, they're, they're left defenseless. Then he wrestled on and it's, it's coming on dawn now. The night is over, the sun is peeking over the horizon, and the angel of the Lord, this, this appearance, Old Testament appearance of Christ said, uh, the day's here, the dawn's breaking, let me go. Just let go, we'll, if you will, we'll call this a draw. Somewhere along the line, Jacob figured out who this was. And Jacob uttered in those incredible words, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Oh, by the way, in the wrestling match, the Lord kind of turned the tables on Jacob. The Bible says he touched the hollow of his thigh. He pulled his thigh out of joint, yay, and the sinew, the muscles and, and ligaments, the Bible says shrank, which means that that he could never pop it back into place again. It would always it'd be permanent. He permanently crippled Jacob. 
You know, sometimes God has to put us in a place of utter weakness before we'll realize how weak we are. Because there's a human thing that says, I can handle this. I can do it on my own. Do you remember trying to watch your kids try to feed themselves? How many remember those works of art on their face? They're gripping the spoon by the wrong end. They're supposed to get it in their mouth and it's kind of going over their shoulder as it's going on their chin. Some of you say, I've got teenagers they are still doing that. Um, th there's just something about us and you'll try to help them and they'll push your hand away. Um, I remember when we first moved here, we were, uh, we were going down to New York City with a family from the church uh, one Saturday and, and uh, we had never even seen New York City before, let alone be there. And uh, we, we took the train down into Grand Central Station and so forth. And my wife was from a little country town in Ohio. Uh, when she was growing up, the population was like 1,200 or something. I think now they have all of 3,000 people. Uh, just a little farming community and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, she thought Wallingford was the city. This was just, this was just big for her. Um, she stepped out of Grand Central Station and we're in New York City and uh, it was beyond big and she was, she was just having a mama meltdown. You remember that day vividly, do you not? Um, I'm holding on to Sarah and Anna. I was under orders to hold them, to grip them tightly, not to let go, and all of that. Tim was eighth grade. He was almost 13. At almost 13, you think you can run the world, okay? He's almost 13, going into eighth grade, and mommy insisted on holding his hand. Death grip death grip. A 13-year-old kid walking through the city holding mommy's hand, not because he wanted to, not because he was scared. It's because mommy was. And, and he's doing his best to try to, every excuse he can to get his hand out of hers and, and all of that. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to calm her down just a little bit. I said, honey, you know, he's, he's, he's almost a teenager. He's going into eighth grade. You, just, just let him go. She said, but there are weird people here. There are weird people here. And he looked up at her and said, you're one of them. So I finally convinced her not to hold his hand anymore, but she had to touch him. She's touching his hair. She's touching his shoulders. She's touching his back all day long. She had, he had mommy fingerprints all over him uh, because, you know, just that, that's just kind of the way it was. Uh, she didn't want to let go. Jacob realized somehow during that prayer meeting, this was God. And I know what Esau thinks. I know what he wants. I know what he's planning to do. And I don't have an army. I have wives and children. I have servants. We're shepherds by trade. We don't have bows and arrows, swords and shields and spears. They do. And he's got 400. We're outnumbered. We're going to die unless God helps me. He says, I'm not going to let you go except you bless me. I wonder what God has to do in our lives before we'll get to that place and say, God, I finally realize how much I need you and I'm not gonna let go. We know he's not letting go of us. 
He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But oftentimes, we're reaching out for other things, for our joy, for our happiness, for our security, for our, for our, our provision, whatever. And God just saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. There was their pleading, there was their persistence, and then there was their profession of faith. Please follow me with this. Verse 28, when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. Do you believe that I can do this? I'm not using a play on words here. I'm not trying to be humorous here. But please understand clearly my words. Do you realize that these men had never seen a miracle? They're blind. They've never seen a miracle. They never saw a, a, a lame man get healed walking, leaping, and praising God. They never saw that. They never saw Jesus walking on the water of the, the Sea of Galilee in a storm. They never saw that. They never saw nets come in so full of fishes that the nets are beginning to break and the ships are beginning to sink from the weight. They never saw that. They didn't see the bread and the fish being broken and passed out to people. If they were in the crowd, all they knew is that somebody put a piece of bread and a piece of fish into their hands and they gobbled it up. They didn't see where it came from. They didn't see how did, how did the bread just keep coming off the same loaf and how did the fish keep coming off the same piece of fish. They, they never saw a miracle, but they'd heard about them. They'd heard about them. And that was enough. There are too many folks saying, well, God needs to prove himself. And, and, and when I see God do something, then I'll believe. Do you realize if these men would have had that attitude, they would have spent the rest of their days as blind men. It's interesting that the Bible says faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. After the resurrection, Jesus came into the upper room where the disciples were assembled and he showed himself alive, said, peace be unto you and so forth. But in that first time that he made himself known to them, Thomas, my namesake, was not there. We're not sure why. We don't know where he was. Every time I read that passage in my scripture, I'm reminded of this thought. We never know what we're going to miss when we skip church. Thomas came back, whether it was later that night or got in the next day, I, we don't know, he came back. And the other disciples excited, we have seen the Lord, we have seen the Lord. And what was Thomas' response? Except I see the prints in his hands and his feet and touch the, the, the print in his side, he said, I will not believe. He didn't say, I can't believe. He said, I will not believe unless I see it for myself. So a few days go by. Peter and James and John and, and Andrew and all the rest of them go, can you believe he showed up? I mean, he just, he just, he just showed up and he's alive. Uh, he's not in the tomb. He's resurrected. And they're understanding all the promises and teachings that he gave them. Their, their understanding's open. And the whole time Thomas is sitting there saying, I didn't see it. 
it, it's, it's meaning nothing to them. So finally, finally, the Savior shows up. The Savior shows up. Let me see if I can find the text. Go with me to John chapter 20. Jesus comes back again. Eight days later. Eight days. Watching everybody else rejoicing while he's confused and discouraged and doubting. John chapter 20, verse 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. This is at the same time both encouraging and rebuking on the Savior's part. He wants Thomas to believe. He doesn't want any of us muddling through life in doubt. He wants us to have this assurance that he is God and all things are possible with him, that he is exactly who he said he is. But at the exact same time of encouragement to Thomas, he's rebuking him because he's just not believing everything he's heard. Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. This is the deity of Christ. Anybody that tries to tell you that Jesus was a man, period, is lying to you. He was God who became man and dwelt amongst us. Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Do you realize, how many here have seen Jesus? I mean, you've seen him. And it wasn't because you had too much pepperoni pizza before you went to bed. How many have seen the nail prints in his hand? How many have touched his body? None of us have seen him. But how many believe he died on the cross? How many believe he was resurrected three days later? How many believe that he's in heaven right now? How many believe he's coming back again? Do you realize none of us have seen him? We will not see him until we go to heaven. We're either going to heaven by way of the grave or by way of the rapture. Either way, we're going to the same place and it's going to be awesome. And we are going to see him as he is. We will see the nail prints in his hand and the spear print in his side. We are going to see that. But here's the amazing thing. The Bible says that we are more blessed than Thomas because we believed without seeing and he wouldn't believe until he saw. Faith cometh by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Jesus asked these two men, do you believe that I can do this? And they said, yea, Lord, we believe. And he said, according to your faith, be it unto you. And suddenly they could see. What an amazing moment for those two men. What an astounding two men. I have no idea what any of you need God to do for you. I'm fully aware, I'm mostly aware of what I know I need God to do for me. There are things that I need God to do that I'll never be able to do on my own, and I'm not talking anything at all about my disability or anything like that. 
I can't make people get saved, but there are people that my heart hurts for them to get saved. There are people away from God and I can't make them come back. There are people getting cold in their walk with God and I can encourage and I can, uh, I, I can try to do my best, but I can't make them have revival. But with God, nothing shall be impossible. The Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save. I have access to the throne of grace and I need to learn to come as boldly as these two blind men and just realize, Lord, I can't do this. I believe you can. And so I'm here until you do. There's also a part of us that needs to ask ourselves this question. How long are we going to live away from God? How long are we going to play the prodigal? How long are we going to put up with the devil's pig pen before we decide to go home to our father? How long are we going to put off salvation because of some other concern or some other thing that we think is so important? How long are we willing to live like that? These two men said, not another day longer. Not another day. And maybe he didn't hear us, so we'll just keep following and make sure he does. He didn't answer us, but we're not done asking. And out of all the multitudes of stories that God could have put in this Bible for us, the Holy Spirit said, Matthew, tell the story of those two blind men. Tell the story of those two men. Because 2,000 years from now, there's a guy named Thomas that's going to need their example to follow. How many today, you know for sure if you died this moment, you'd go to heaven. You can look back to the time, the place where you understood the gospel. You knew that salvation is not by good works or baptism or membership in a church, but it's by Jesus Christ and him alone. And you ask Christ to save you from your sin. And you know for sure, if this were your last day here on earth, you'd be in heaven. How many can say that? John wrote and said, these things have I written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. For me, that happened 53 years ago, this coming Tuesday, August the 5th. I was a teenager who rode a bus to church and I heard the gospel message and I responded and I trusted Christ as my savior. I have God's promise that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <clears throat> to everybody that raised your hand a moment ago, you're saved. Praise the Lord. Really, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But what are you doing without that God wants you to have? You're just not crying. You stopped asking or maybe you never started. What's discouraged you? Or maybe God's been working in your life and you've been pushing back and you've been putting it off. How long are you willing to live without him? How long? When I was in Bible college, I was with my partner Brad Tompkins one day. It was bitter cold in Chicago. Bitter cold, the windy, windy city. It was January. There was snow everywhere. Um, it, it was just brutal day. And we went into uh, an apartment building. They're very common on the north side of Chicago. It was a foul-smelling place. 
People had used the, the lobby as a restroom, graffiti covering the walls inside and outside of the building. And we had been sent there. There had been a teenager that lived up on the third floor that had come and ridden the bus to church. And, and we had been just sort of sent to follow up and, and meet with him. And so we knocked on the door and we heard some noise inside. We knew someone was home and we kind of knocked again a little bit louder. And finally, the door opened and a gentleman, he was in his early 30s, answered the door. Um, he, you could tell we had just woken him up and so we asked if this young man was there and we told him who we were and where we were from and he said no I, I have no idea where he is um, and so we're, we're talking to him and trying to find out does he know the Lord is his savior and believe it or not he invited us into his apartment there was a layer of trash on the floor about this deep in the living room I mean everywhere and as he is directing us, we're following him into the kitchen. The pile of trash moves. Somebody was sleeping on the floor in the midst of all that. We sat down at the kitchen table. The kitchen cabinets were over here, right above the stove. And something had caught fire on the stove. And the doors of the cabinets were burned off. They were still using the, the, the shelves and stuff in there. The, the sink was piled with dirty dishes. And uh, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. Uh, cockroaches were just climbing everywhere, uh, everywhere you could see them. We sat at the table and Brad and I spent the next hour, hour and a half or so talking to this young man and sharing the gospel. He told us how he had been raised in church. He told us how he'd been raised in a church that preached the gospel, but he decided he didn't want that. As soon as he was old enough, he went out and did his own thing. Long story short, he got messed up in drugs and alcohol. Turns out he already had a warrant for his arrest, and the police were looking for him that very day. He had a, he had a criminal background. And we sat there in those dismal surroundings, and we shared Christ with him. And he, he wasn't drunk. He was fully sober. But he was emotional and he was literally crying, tears streaking down his face. And Brad, my partner, asked him if he would trust Christ as his savior. Sitting in the center of the table was a Michelob beer bottle. It was empty, sitting in the middle of the table. And Brad said, sir, do you know that you need to be saved? He said, I do said, do you realize Christ can save you from all your sin? Christ can give you a brand new life. He said, I do. Would you receive Christ as Savior? And he paused. And I'm sitting there praying. I was a silent partner for the most part. And, and I'm just praying. And even Brad just paused. You could tell the wheels were turning. When all of a sudden, this young man reached to the center of the table and grabbed the beer bottle and he hugged it to his chest like a child would hold on to a stuffed animal. And he began to rock and he began to sob. And he said, I can't give this up. I want this too, much, too, but, too bad. We couldn't talk him out of it. Brad and I walked back out into the icy, bitter day and our hearts were broken. What are we willing to put up with? to miss out on all that God has for us.
Can we bow our heads for prayer? Father, thank you for the message of those two.